This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device wherever in the world you might be via podcast. I'm Olivia Rosenman, and this week we have two very special guests joining me in the studio to talk about truth and trust and news and the internet. And we're going to do our very best not to talk about the leader of a rather large country south of Canada, <laughs> because frankly we're all just really tired of that. Claire Wardle is the Director of Research and Projects with First Draft News. First Draft is a not-for-profit that is dedicated to improving skills and standards in the reporting and sharing of information that emerges online. Hi, Claire. Hi. Malachi Brown is a senior story producer with the New York Times and a pioneer of international investigative reporting via eyewitness media and community engagement. Hi, Mal. Howdy. Claire. Fake news is big news right now, but I understand that you're not a fan of the term. You prefer to use the term the misinformation ecosystem, and you've devised a pretty comprehensive typology from misinformation right through to disinformation. Could you just walk us through the different ways that we can be deceived by what we read and what we see online? Yeah, so my frustration about the term fake news is that we at First Draft had been looking at this phenomenon for a couple of years. Craig Silverman, who was a member of First Draft, did some really interesting research in 2014 and he found like the National Report, American site, where there was just 100% fake articles created entirely for profit. And so that in that understanding of fake news, I was fine with the term. But then the election happened. Donald Trump started using it as a, as a slur. If you look at hashtag fake news on Twitter, which is people saying that to one another if they don't like what you say. So the term has become completely meaningless. And because Trump himself has kind of weaponized the term, I think specifically we shouldn't be using it because we're playing into his narrative. And so when we think about those types of piece, those pieces of content that are 100% fake made for profit, that is part of the ecosystem. But we also have to be aware of, for example, correct images, but that are old, but recirculate during a breaking news event. We have to think about imposter content when people use logos or even journalists' names. So it looks correct, but actually it's not. We need to think about uh, manipulation. We need to think about misleading headlines or captions. Sometimes you'll see a site where actually the text itself is fine, but in order to get people to click on Facebook, it's very misleading. And so journalists and the news industry have to take responsibility for the way they word their headlines, their choice of images. So I think about it as pollution, almost scales of pollution, thinking about air quality. And I think for users, we have to recognize that now it's more complex than ever. You know, we have to navigate these very sophisticated information ecosystems that come to us, they overwhelm our brains. We need to understand that some of that is going to be not as true as it could be. It's not as black and white as fake news and real news. Uh, and I think we just need to do more to recognize the different types of information that we might stumble across. 
What you said about the term having been uh, co-opted by politicians is really true, and I think that's something that really interests me. In Australia, certainly, politicians really like to use that term as well, to shut down any story that they don't want people paying attention to or makes them look bad. I just wonder, have you been able to pinpoint the precise time where that term actually was co-opted from being genuine news that is not real to this sort of very politicised way that it's used now? So it's interesting if you go to uh, Google Trends, which is a free tool where you can look at what people are searching. And if you actually search for the phrase fake news, it's pretty much wasn't being searched for at all. And then there was a blip just after the election and then it kind of went back to normal. And then the day that Donald Trump had the press conference where he specifically called out CNN and said, you're fake news, it was this huge blip. And so he at that moment made people go, hang on, what's this term? And then since then, we've seen people think it's okay to use it as, as a term. But I agree with you, the fact that politicians can use it to describe anything they don't like, that's what's so dangerous. When Donald Trump uses it in this way, he's essentially saying, there's nobody else that you can trust. I mean, you can trust Fox News, they have great ratings, terrific ratings. But what he's basically saying is, trust me and my sources. And in a free democracy, that's when it becomes really, really worrying. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Google Trends. It occurred to me to have a look at Google Ngrams for the term fake news. It's really interesting. There's this little blip around the late 30s. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I didn't go back that far. The dangerous comparison to make there is with um, the rise of the Nazis in Germany, you know. Um, and also, I mean, when you think about what fake news is, it's it's an attempt to delegitimize institutions of accountability by the powerful uh, so that they can, as Claire said, give their message. The judiciary, it's the press, it's, you know, whatever else that calls into question the powerful. And... Now, with the means of broadcast at the hands of politicians, you can bypass the traditional checks and balances and, and really attack uh, media. So, I mean, that's an interesting correlation. But it also it frustrates me sometimes the debate about this is really ahistorical. And, it, you know, we have had fake news for you know centuries. We've had the yellow press. We've had all of that. And we should be putting this in context. The new part of this is the fact that anybody can create it. So, you know, you watch an eight-year-old on an iMovie, their ability to create this kind of content, or they can spin up a WordPress site in two seconds. That's the, that's the shift, is that anybody can do it. And the dissemination mechanisms mean that this spreads so quickly. But the idea of fooling people is certainly not new. And I think we, we should be having more discussions about the history of this. The AFP news director, Michelle Leridon, said that the core values of the news profession are under attack. Social media scholar Dana Boyd said that an information war has begun. Do you think that this sort of discourse is perhaps a little bit over the top? The war on drugs certainly hasn't been very effective. The war on terrorism rages on. Do you think that there might be a more helpful way to frame the issue? I've used the same terminology and I've had pushback as well from other people. And certainly I don't like using military <laughs> descriptions for this. But at the same time, my worry is that we're not taking this seriously enough. And certainly there are people uh, or there are governments who are using very sophisticated techniques to deceive. And my fear is if we don't understand how sophisticated they're being. And certainly, you know, Russia have always been masters in this space and they have been perfecting this since 2008 in the war in Georgia, which they won the war, but they saw themselves as losing the propaganda war. And so since then, they've been perfecting these techniques. And so I think if we don't recognise that this isn't just some teenagers in Macedonian basements making this content, that we also have to think through systematic, very sophisticated campaigns using automation 
and using micro targeting, then we're missing the point. So I think, you know, Dan has used the term, I've used the term, I don't like it, but at some level I want to be like, hey people, this is serious and I wish we had another word to describe something that would make people sit up and take note. But it's it's just it's a new manifestation of the same old propaganda and political messaging that has been there through the ages and you know, some politicians and parties are more adept at, at, at using that. Netanyahu, in fact, through the Iran talks, was really adept at using his Facebook channel to post messages as he was going into negotiations with John Kerry, knowing that they would be picked up by the international media, create their own pressure on those negotiations. And, you know, he, he it was really effective for him, I, I think. <laughs> A recent study from the Media Insight Project showed that the main factor in determining readers' trust in an article appears to be who shared it and not the news organisation that published it. Why do we have this seemingly blind trust in our friends and our family? The other way to think about this is not just putting it in historical context, but is understanding social psychology. And there has been some great research by social psychologists who previously nobody really took any note. And all of a sudden they're waving their hands saying, hey, do you want to listen to my research? The thing that comes through loud and clear is that our brains are essentially lazy. They're these complex organs but we don't actually use them in the way that we should do and so when we are going through this absolutely overwhelming amount of information that hits us every day I mean you just think for the moment you wake up and you start scrolling to the time you go to bed we have more information now and we're consuming more information than ever before so in order to make sense of this we have to rely on heuristics these mental shortcuts and so one of the most powerful mental shortcuts is if somebody shares something with you and you already know that they are trustworthy your brain can be like oh great I don't have to do my own independent trust because I can just rely on that shortcut. So that research that came out yesterday didn't surprise me because social media is built on these trusted networks. And increasingly, when we get our information from that, we use our friends as a shortcut. And we all know our friends and family, those who are more trustworthy than, you know, the crazy uncle. Um, And so even within that, we have a sense of our own understanding of who to trust and who not. As scary as it is, I think that there's actually also something that's a little bit nice about it. You know, there's something about heartwarming about how much we're willing to trust our friends. And it's also so, as you said, something that's very human, that's hardwired into our brain. Is there any way that we can, instead of trying to fight this, capitalise on this human nature to stop the misinformation ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with the misinformation ecosystem is the scale of it and the scale of the sharing. And, you know, if there, if that's a technological problem, there's a technological solution through the crowd again. And I remember there was a project called Micromappers that would uh, take pieces of social content around humanitarian emergencies and put it out to a network of 30,000 people. And the technology would make decisions based on the response of people of whether this was real or legitimate or not as to whether they would capture that as being relevant to that emergency. It's possible that you could look at doing something similar for networks. The main difficulty there is that the filter bubbles are so entrenched to that you're going to get you know perspective will, will weave its way into that but but i do think we have to work harder at making it socially unacceptable to share false information and i think that in terms of kind of news literacy projects we need to give people the tools to actually explain to a family member or a friend who shared something that's incorrect how do you politely explain in a public setting like facebook 
You know, everybody says, oh, we, I just am constantly sharing out Snopes links, but we should have a better way of doing that and giving people the tools to explain how you do that. I think that's the secret. And I've heard about news literacy projects where mums get together in libraries and give each other tools and techniques for how to check the credibility of news. I think we have to recognize that that's what we need to get to. And certainly a bit like drink driving, you know, I'll say to Mal, you know, put your keys down. This is not how you're going to get home. People need to be embarrassed if they share information that's false. And at the moment, they're not. They're like, oh, yeah, sorry, whoops. Or no, I definitely think it's true because it, it's their confirmation bias. So, Is it something we should be teaching at schools? Yes. Are you aware of anywhere in the world that is looking at introducing news literacy in, into curriculum? I'm not as outside of journalism schools, but... Well, there's actually a news literacy project in the US and it's been around for over a decade, started by an ex-journalist called Alan Miller. And they've been doing great work, but nobody really cared about them. And all of a sudden they're at the center of all of this. And I think a good thing to come out of it is that I think there's going to be a lot more money that's that's actually, you know, put into this space. And certainly news literacy is, is a way that people can say, yeah, almost to the point that I worry a little bit that it makes people feel like, oh, if we just invest in news literacy, we've done our job. And I think the platforms have quite a lot of responsibility to, to make changes on their platforms. But I mean, for example, in the US, I'm not sure about Australia, there isn't a core curriculum. So there's real difficulties in, okay, how do we actually spread this and make this work to scale? You have certain schools with really enthusiastic teachers who do this and it's part of the curriculum, but you have other schools where this is not what's getting taught. I guess, you know, one of the parts of firstdraftnews.com is education and, and literacy and training people. But I, I suppose the main audience for that at the moment is probably the, the industry itself. But there are opportunities there for, you know, similar initiatives to, to go out to a bigger audience and to students and that. And I think, you know, because younger people are intuitively adept at the platforms and the platforms so offer so much potential now for journalism, I think they'll innately get it and understand it. And through that interest in power of that information, they, they could engage with that sort of literacy project. Yeah, and I think quite, this is not around any particular news literacy project, but I've definitely seen projects with the curriculum is, what's a headline? What's a byline? And it's, it's, it's all about how do you read news when actually it needs to be, how do you do reverse image search? How do you look at metadata? How do you look at a Snapchat filter? You know, those sorts of things. We need to be at that level because information now is much more visual. It's much more social. It's not that traditional. What's an article? There's a project in Dublin called Fighting Words that was set up by Roddy Doyle, who's an Irish uh, novelist. The intent there is to bring kids from schools around Ireland into a setting where they just have a creative outlet to do stories, create stories, visual stories, and just kind of storyboard and storm ideas. And they actually print magazines and books and cartoons and all of that sort of stuff. And we did a couple of workshops on social journalism. And I was amazed by A, how easily they picked it up and were able to report the news based on searching through social and B, how, uh, you know, shocked they were that their information was so publicly available. They didn't realize it at, at, at all that it's so easy to mine information. Often we think, you know, if I'm putting a Facebook post out that just my friends and my family are seeing it, but, you know, a snooping journalist can find that as well, or even worse, yeah. you know, <laughs> predators. I'm really interested also to understand what is behind this this impulse we seem to have to share everything. It's not okay to just read something and appreciate it and absorb it. There is this desire to reshare it as your own. I wonder if you have any insight on why we feel that need. It's worth recognizing that the platforms are designed to be addictive. So when you share something and you get lots of pings and notifications that other people have connected with you, you get this dopamine hit. And the reason that people will spend up to an hour on Facebook daily, I mean, those levels are incredible in terms of consumption, but they are designed to do that. And so that sharing part is 
we like to be liked. <laughs> so that's why we have to spend more time with psychologists. Like they are crucial to understanding all of this. It's also an expression of, of yourself. And, uh, you know, that dangerously feeds into editorial choices as well, you know, about, you know, subject matter and the types of stories that we put onto, onto social. And some news organizations have been uh, really adept at that, at kind of advocacy journalism. And those are highly shareable because, you know, you have they elicit an emotional response and then you share that with your community because, I don't know, it expresses a certain interest or point of view um, and that kind of thing. When we talk about the way that people use and consume social media, I'm often reminded of this book I read by a woman called Natasha Shaw, Addiction by Design. And it's about gaming machines, what we call here in Australia, pokies, and <laughs> how that they're, they're completely designed to get you into what she calls the zone, which is sort of like a trance-like state where you just keep going and going and going. And it just it's amazing the parallels there with your Facebook feed or Twitter feed. And it's, it's a little bit terrifying. But I wonder, I mean, are we really actually faced here with the biggest global epidemic of addiction? we've ever seen? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th I think anybody who has children and looks at the amount of time that they spend and that sense of, well, if I don't get 50 likes immediately, I take it down. And Washington posted a great piece last year on this and this kind of 13-year-old girl who was talking to her dad whilst with one thumb you know, was actually just like, yes, no, yes, no. Like just, she's like, oh, I have to respond to all of my messages. So I do worry about, and I'm certainly not a neuroscientist, but I think our brains are having to adapt. You know, we're consuming more information than ever before on smaller screens in the middle of the night. I mean, we are doing things to our brains in a way that we're having to adapt to new forms of information. And I think sometimes we can we can be so worried about this and we can have this kind of techno fear. You know, artificial intelligence is going to kill us or social media is going to kill us or it's killing our brains. But I do think we're not doing enough research to understand all of this and I do think in terms of younger people that dopamine hit and what that means to them or what it means for friendships and how how they actually learn to connect with people I do I do really worry about that in the English-speaking world, we've got Facebook and Twitter. And while Facebook has just reported a first quarter profit of $1.5 Twitter is not doing so well. And it seems every few months, rumours circulate that it's going to fall over. If it actually does, if we lose Twitter, does that halve the problem? Or does it double it in that it sends everyone to Facebook? It's a really good question. I don't know. I worry about Twitter, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like on Twitter, obviously there's whatever, 300 million active users on, on Twitter. You know, definitely the most active people that I, that I engage with at least are, you know, journalists and NGOs and people who use it to put out a particular message. Uh, it can be useful for news gathering as well. It's very useful for news gathering, in fact. But I don't know if it, if that doubles the problem on, on Facebook. I mean, there are multiple platforms at the moment. I think also a social media user is a social media across platforms. So it's rare to meet somebody on Twitter who also doesn't use Facebook. But I think we also need to be aware of YouTube. So I think at some level, it feels like YouTube is less relevant and it's become the way that people watch TV. But actually, in terms of the misinformation ecosystem, there are some wacky conspiracy theorist people up there with their, you know, evening time shows with large, large viewerships that are kind of going unnoticed, but they're monetizing. You know, it's much easier to monetize content on YouTube. So all of these platforms are very different. They do different things, but they're all part of this ecosystem. I mean, Facebook is the behemoth, but I think to our peril, if we don't also recognize the specific issues with other platforms.
Another consequence of the fact that most people, especially younger people, get their news from social platforms is that they tend to have a much more fragmented media diet. And I wonder if part of the problem is that people aren't actually, they don't actually have a very clear idea of what they're consuming, that if you presented everything that they've read over a week, they might actually be quite surprised with where they've been. So do you think that if people were actually better able to track what they were reading, that this would go somewhere to helping the problem? There's not much research on that. We were talking about this yesterday, and there needs to be more research on it. But it would seem uh, intuitive to me that if there were different types of messaging on the platforms as to what type of content you're consuming, then that would have an effect on what's shared and what's not. I mean, because I think those of us who consume quite a lot of news, it would be clear to us that something was an opinion article. But for example, the Washington Post has had some really hard-hitting opinion pieces about Trump. But then many users just say, well, I can't trust the Washington Post because they hate Trump and they don't know the difference between opinion and hard news. So even that, improving labelling on that. And I think this piece about helping people track what they're reading, giving people more context to what they're reading. I think a lot of this is just opening people's eyes. And somebody suggested a tool where essentially you see the text but it rips out the title or the byline or everything else and then kind of at the end you can click the button because you can guess or is this Fox is this Breitbart is this Guardian is this Washington Post as a tool to see if you can see the difference between different outlets but I mean we just have to be creative I think at this stage whoever wants to build interesting tools and a, a news tracker that helps you look at your diet a bit like those trackers we have on our phones that tell us how many steps we've walked you know I think we should have more of that which like Claire you've read 50 articles today 49 of them were from the left-leaning spectrum what does that mean about you You know just those sorts of things to, to improve our awareness i think it's a good idea if it's not the platforms that delineate different types of content maybe the publishers themselves will you know there's a clear line between new york times editorial and new york times news and features and that line of coverage but you know often that that'll end up in, in the same feed and in the algorithm as claire says you know people don't necessarily know the difference but maybe we need to think about messaging that differently and alerting the audience or messaging to the audience what they're about to um, engage with. Some platforms have done that. I think BuzzFeed have three different colors that denote subliminally different types of content. I mean, going back to the book about design, we need to bring designers in. We need to test those designs and not just assume, oh, that, that must work with audiences. You know, we should actually, in the lab and in the field, actually test whether that does make a difference. You're listening to Fourth Estate. How much of the problem do you think stems from the fact that when the internet first came along, most news organisations just put all their content online for free? I'm wondering if we would start to see fake news or misinformation become less of a problem when media subscriptions or even, say, micropayments on a per-article basis are a mainstream thing and that there's much clearer boundary between what is actually news and then everything that's that's not. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, the decisions in the mid-90s to basically not use paywalls, I mean, some publishers were different, but many people said, we're just going to put it up there for free and advertising will be our way that we make money. And nobody really thought through the implications of what does it mean when everybody can become a publisher and so now you're absolutely right those of us who consume a lot of news absolutely know the difference between the new york times and a blogger in their basement for, for many people they don't so i think you know you're absolutely right in terms of how do we think about business models and what that's meant and i do think we're moving in the direction of subscriptions i think that will also be around trust which is we know who you are we're going to deliver news that we know that you want you can trust us that relationship with individuals will improve Whereas at the moment it's just this mass market we'll just push it out we want scale i don't think that's sustainable and i think this problem might play into a, a moment of hang on we need to 
we need to do more to differentiate ourselves. Facebook has finally started to take the problem seriously and has introduced some more sophisticated ways that fake news stories are flagged and shared. For example, in the US, people that are trying to share stories that have been fact-checked and found to be false will now get a warning, ask, do you really want to share this piece of content? So I wonder, ultimately, will the solution be found in humans or in technology? The human algorithm, you say? Yeah, I think it has to be a combination of both. You can train the technology to, to detect different types of content and different types of reactions to content and conversations around it and hashtag fake news if you want to. But I think ultimately there, there does need to be a human making that decision because technology is vulnerable. I think satire is the most obvious issue there. You know, sentiment analysis has become smarter. But, you know, we're in Australia. You're, you're like the Brits. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of information out there that would look to a computer. Well, that sounds completely reasonable. But actually, we would know in a heartbeat that it's not. Technology, I think, will help surface it and then do the basic checks. And then you'll have humans being like, yep, nope, yep, nope. We've seen in the past few months a huge change in the way Mark Zuckerberg has spoken about the issue from not at all to, okay, we're taking this seriously. But I just wonder, how much of a problem do you think it is that essentially it seems like much of the fate of the online news ecosystem rests on the understanding and actions of a 32-year-old white guy from <laughs> New York? Mal, as a white guy? Uh, I don't know. What are the checks and balances there? Um he didn't ever expect in his Harvard dorm room that he was going to create this behemoth. And, you know, there's criticism of him and saying, you need to accept that you're a media publisher. Facebook isn't a publisher, but it's not. It's also not just a platform. And it's it's a new entity that we don't have regulation around. We don't have a rule book. We don't have precedent. We've never had anything that's a global entity on the scale that Facebook is. And as you say, Mark Zuckerberg is, has done an incredible job, but he comes from a very particular worldview and he's just, you know, he's trying his best. And I think he does have the right intentions. But I do worry about the absence of checks and balances. And, they're, you know, they're a commercial company. We can't ask for access to, you know, we can ask for data access, but it doesn't mean he's going to give it to us. We can ask for more algorithmic accountability. doesn't mean we're going to get it. And so the power that Facebook has, but the absence of accountability, that's what worries me. And I do think we want more of that. And I think Europe is thinking very seriously about regulation. And I know that the big networks are worried about it. And I certainly don't think regulation is the answer if it's, if it's going to curb free speech. But I think there are other aspects of Facebook and its size uh, and its impact that we need to have more scrutiny over. Yeah, I mean, and their main engagement has been to grow the platform and grow the odds. That's, that's what they're accountable to. Their they're, they're numbers they're interested in. They're not necessarily interested in the future of journalism, you know, informed citizenry. And, you know, they've repeatedly demonstrated that by the lack of will to tackle issues like this, but also to make the platform more navigable by journalists by the media industry they do have media partnerships and uh, and all of that but that's to just basically have more content on the facebook platform so there there does need to be much greater accountability and will to address the issues and regulations and standards and codes of engagement Claire, you mentioned regulation and the German government has just published a draft law that will fine social networks up to 50 million euros, which is around about 69 million Australian dollars, for failing to take down hate speech, fake news and other so-called undesirable content. Do you think, do you think that's going to work in Germany? I mean, the issue around regulation at this scale is who becomes the arbiter of what's right or wrong. And certainly in Germany, I mean, they have very different ways of thinking about privacy and of course, right to be forgotten in Europe. If, if there's information about you on Google, you can actually say, I have a right to be forgotten. I want that taken out of the search results. So it's a very different context to the US. 
do you worry a little bit that this is is a kind of a knee-jerk reaction and I'm not sure who, who are the people who make these decisions about what should be taken down or not? I mean, the case recently of a refugee who took a selfie with Angela Merkel and then that he put that up and then lots of people took it and abused him and he had a terrible time and he basically took Facebook to court and said, you should be able to take down every version of that photo. And they said, oh, our technology isn't quite there. And that goes back to the impact that they have and, you know, if they were a startup, that's one thing. But the size that they are, they have to be able to have responses to these types of issues. And I don't think they're quite there yet. So I think my only concern about regulation is if it's not thought through and it looks knee jerk. And I'm not quite sure how the, the practicalities of that would work. Are we going to have ombudsmen? Are we going to have audience councils that make decisions about these things? I would worry if, if it's the government deciding what gets taken down. YouTube developed algorithms to detect when music was being yeah. scraped and copied on its platform. And it was incentivized to do that because it wanted the record companies to post music there because that's where users were going to watch music videos. And it was a commercial uh, incentive. So it's possible to do that. I mean, it's just another example of Facebook not really having the will to address that on yeah. behalf of its users because it's so powerful because people are on it anyway. Because I think in the next 10 years, there will be a kind of a user movement that says, Facebook, you have so much data about me that over the last 10 years of the things that I've been putting into Facebook that actually probably might help me with my health decisions. Or, you know, we don't even realize that our footprints of what we're giving to Google or Facebook, that actually when you put that together it's very valuable as individuals and I think we'll have a movement where people are saying I want my data back and that is going to be the shift when actually these platforms go oh you're right we are powered by data that's not ours and you'll have somebody saying you know actually if I had access to that data I would have seen that I was moving towards diabetes or I don't I don't know but it's astonishing when you look at people's search habits or you look at what they post that there are clues to their own lives and I think that's what we'll see in a decade and that will be a big shift and I think that's another thing that the platforms haven't thought through. And it takes users and citizens to hold into account for that if you take Max Schrems for instance you know he challenged Facebook about his data being captured uh, in Europe, but being transferred internationally into other legal jurisdictions where data about him might not be protected in the same way as the country that he lives. Uh, and he won a case with Facebook. And I don't, don't know where it's at at the moment, actually. But basically that if his data is captured in Europe, it has to remain within Europe where there's legal protections as a member of a European country and not transferred over to the States. Let's move on and talk a little bit about partisan media because there's very much the idea that we're moving more and more to a partisan media landscape. And certainly partisan media is not a new phenomenon. In the 19th century in the US, most papers were partisan. Australia also has a more recent history of partisan media. So let me just play the devil's advocate here. Is partisan media really such a bad thing? Might it in fact be better if instead of expecting media to be objective, we would just require them to state their political leanings or bias and then we could just all stop worrying about hidden agendas and fake news? I don't know. I think the states is so polarised at the moment politically and in media diets. Yeah, I mean when I first moved to the states in the 90s somebody basically described you know, in the early 90s, if you thought about left and right and you thought about a football field, everybody was kind of congregated around the middle line. Now, everybody's on either side of the goalposts and there's pretty much nobody in the middle. And I agree with Mal. Polarisation in the States is, is off the scale. But what I do worry about is if we just let the partisan press exist, again, there's a scale within left and right. So there was some great work that was done by the Berkman Center that was published recently in um, Columbia Journalism Review. And they'd mapped out the sources from the US election, thousands of that, like over 22,000, I think. And they actually visually mapped it out and said, look, here's the big blob in the center. Here's a big blob to the left. 
Then there was this vacuum where there was really there's very little center right in the US, but you've got this growing, you know, Fox News, Breitbart, Infowars. So then if you're in any way inclined to the right, if there's a vacuum, you get pushed much further to the right. So I think my concern is if we just go down that line, we really do just carry on screaming at one another. And that I just don't think is good for a healthy democracy. And I think the difference between objectivity versus impartiality, you know, in the States, they think about objectivity as, well, we need to give quotes from both sides. And it's this kind of Jay Rosen calls it the view from nowhere. But actually impartiality, which ABC and BBC thinks about is about fairness, which is how do you actually ensure all views and values are given a voice. And that's becoming increasingly difficult because of polarization. But I'm not ready to give up on it just yet. I feel like it's easier just to stay in our partisan camps. But I do worry what that means when polarization is pushing us way on either side of those goalposts and how do we live alongside one another when we just don't understand and if we don't hear from the other side we don't understand we become less tolerant and then where do we end up that's why you have regulators in certain countries insist at least at public broadcasters that you know you have um, equal representation of uh, political views particularly around election campaigns and referenda yeah and, it, and it's very obvious when you live in the States that that doesn't exist. And it makes you realise what you've taken for granted. While we're talking about partisan media, I noticed that Russia Today has just launched a new initiative called Fake Check. And the tagline is that it will help you to separate fact from fiction and transit into a post-fake reality, which sounds a little bit sci-fi, really. But I think it's quite likely that Russia Today's fact-checking conclusions will probably look a little bit different to those of, say... PolitiFact. So what do you make of this new initiative from Russia Today? And is anything really fake or really real? For me, it goes back to why it's so dangerous that Donald Trump talks about fake news. You know, the fact that anybody can say that they are a fact checker, the fact that anybody can say this is the truth is what worries me so much. And, and the idea that, you know, they have a term that sounds real. I mean, for example, my auntie, who I love dearly, will say, oh, I have a mixed media diet. I watch Al Jazeera and I watch Russia Today. She lives in the UK. They've got a big presence in the UK. That worries me, but she doesn't know. She doesn't recognise that Russia Today is, you know, is an arm of the Russian government. Uh, she wouldn't challenge that fake check. She'd say, oh, this is helpful. That's how, you know. So that's, there's so much of us having to educate audiences about who has an ethical policy, an editorial policy, policy, a corrections policy, what does traditional mainstream media looks like? What what are the checks and balances that journalists use and is part of the process? It does worry me. Russia Today and Sputnik are very sophisticated, are having impact and I and I do worry about it. I would be skeptical about any news outlet that is closely aligned with uh, government fact checks. You can choose the facts that you want to check and you can yeah. choose the facts that you want to present and ignore other facts. One last question, and once again, maybe I'm playing the devil's advocate here, but it seems to me that whenever we talk about fake news or misinformation, all the examples come from the alt-right, that the Pope endorsed President Trump, that Hillary Clinton is a pedophile, that Obama white-tapped Trump Tower. Is the problem here really the alt-right? No, the problem is confirmation bias. And before the election, the people who were trying to make profit recognised that there are lots of people who were fearful of Hillary Clinton winning and this idea that nothing was going to change. And so they profited on that by being anti-Hillary. It, it was an easy way to make money. What we've seen since Trump's election is that we have people on the left who are now worried. And the weekend of the executive order on Twitter, I was on there 48 hours. I mean, it was a, a weekend like no other that I had experienced. And so I was you know, trying to get as much information as possible because things were changing all the time. And all I could see were my friends, journalists, retweeting old accounts, 
making claims that weren't true. And it just is a reminder that this is not just a, a, a right wing problem. We are humans with lazy brains. And when we're fearful and emotionally heightened, we don't do those critical checks. And so I think now with Trump, there's a new industry basically targeting fearful liberals who want like nothing other to see Trump impeached. So they are falling for all sorts of hoaxes, all sorts of information, because that makes them feel better. Like, please tell me tomorrow he'll be impeached. So for me, it's a good thing because it shows us that we can't say, oh, fake news, I'm using bunny ears, doesn't affect me, it's everybody else. It affects all of us because we all have those emotional capacities to, to not be critical. And, you know, trust has broken down, not just in the media, but also in a lot of the central political parties, particularly in Europe as well. And when the base is ignored for so long, there's a rightful anger and they're going to seek some other answers. This is what we're seeing with the rise of populist nationalist parties across Europe. And that's just another manifestation of the same thing. That's all we have time for today on Fourth Estate. Thank you so much to my guests, Claire Wardle from First Draft News. Thanks, Claire. Thank you for having me. And Malachi Brown from the New York Times. Thanks, Malachi. Thank you. That's it from us this week. If you like the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes or whichever podcast catcher you use. Stay in touch on Facebook and on Twitter. See you next week on Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate.